Morning. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the, the year 249, there was an outbreak in Rome. And this was a viral outbreak that uh, would just tower over the experience that we're living through right now. For almost 14 years, from 249 to 262, they had what was eventually called the Plague of Cyprian. There were towns, entire towns in Italy, that were completely abandoned, some of them forever. They literally ceased to exist as a result of this plague. Something like one-third to one-half of the Roman Empire died in the course of this. It was one of at least four different epidemics that uh, erupted throughout the, the, the Roman Empire during the season after the church came into existence. And it was one of four that played a vital role in the church expanding its witness and growing as a, as a people. Uh, the reason why it's called the Plague of Cyprian, interestingly enough, is because it is named after Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage. Um, he would write about how the plague that they were living through searches us. It, it, uh, it, it calls us to be something. In fact, we discover in the course of the, the, the epidemic that they were dealing with, it would either call out the way of the flesh, which would emphasize self-preservation, taking care of themselves, or the way of the spirit. And throughout that plague, it was the church that became known as the people who would brave infection in order to care for the stranger. Whereas the Roman citizens often were turning their back on each other as they were fearing uh, catching this disease, it was the church that led the way in risking life and limb, literally risking their lives to brave the epidemic in order to care for one another. And as a result, interestingly enough, it was the Christian, the Christian death rates throughout that plague were far lower, because, even though they were exposed to far higher risk of infection. It was the church member that would go and minister to the sick, risking, uh, receiving that, uh, risking being infected, whereas the Roman citizen was walking away. Their death rate was lower because they practiced mutual love. They would have a higher risk of infection that was offset by the fact that they were caring for one another. And in caring for one another, uh, they were making themselves vulnerable to death. And in the course of it, it's a 
pattern that's existed throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, there was one historian some years ago wrote about how it was the epidemics was one of the key reasons why the church transformed from this small little outband of, of, of Jewish folks in the middle of the first century Rome, middle of Israel, to becoming the dominant force in the Western world. The reason why, in part, was because of the way the church responded when there was a viral outbreak. Um, we saw it again many years later, Ulrich Zwingli in 1519. I talked about uh, last week Martin Luther dealing with the rise of the, the recurring uh, recurrence of the Black Death, the Black Plague in his hometown of, of Wittenberg and some of the surrounding, surrounding towns. Two centuries prior that had killed something like a third to a half of Europe had been wiped out by the Black Death. But here it was back. And I talked last week about how Martin Luther was wrestling with how to respond to it. But Ulrich Zwingli, uh, encountered the same thing, the same time, 1519, in his uh, where he was first in his ministry in Zurich, uh, and it was his his ministry over the few months had been marked by the strength of his preaching, uh, the the way that he called people to a bold faith, uh, you know, holding out the beauty of this Reformation era and the Reformation doctrine, rediscovering the Bible, emphasizing Scripture, and in the course of that, people were being drawn to it. And then the Black Plague come, came. The town is impacted by it. The town is dealing with all the fear. Uh, gets it. He's sick for months. Something like a third of the town would die in the course of the plague. But here he was, week after week, speaking. Now with not a thundering voice, but with a weak one. Weakened by this plague that was eating away at his body. And yet... Week after week, it was Zwingli who was calling people to trust in God's sovereign care, to trust in God's providence. And as a result of that ministry, even as he recovered and came back to strength, it was that message in the midst of the viral outbreak that took hold and made a lasting impact on his ministry and a lasting impact on the world. A few centuries later, Charles Spurgeon, again, early in his ministry, I think it's his first year in the 1850s, there's a cholera outbreak in London. Um, and so his ministry radically transforms. This preaching ministry becomes a ministry to the sick. The church keeps on meeting in the midst of the outbreak. They insist on gathering together as God's people, and they keep on growing as a church. They're still baptizing people. They're still seeing people come to faith. They're doing all the, the stuff of church life in the midst of this outbreak, knowing that as people are seeing this around them, as they're facing the fear of death, what they're finding is people are ready to hear the gospel. God uses outbreaks. God has used viral outbreaks again and again throughout history to his advance his kingdom. And he will use the one that we're dealing with right now. He will use this one. The key in each of those stories and so many more that we could recount is the way that the church and the people in the church were ready to take up the mantle and be the people of God in word and in deed in the midst of the outbreak. What each of those stories that I just recounted, are, the pattern that you see in all of them, is that the church was alert and was ready to do kingdom work. That's the challenge for us. And it's the challenge that we're actually finding here in Revelation 3. Because what we're doing as we open up 
Revelation 3, and I encourage you, get your Bibles open here as we study these six verses. We're finding here in this church, the church in Sardis, a church that is not ready, a, a church that is not prepared to be the people that they are called to be. Sardis is an interesting place. Sardis has an interesting history. At one point, it was one of the key cities in the ancient world. It had been for many centuries, and there was two key things that happened. One, Sardis got conquered. It got conquered by a guy named Cyrus, a guy that shows up in Scripture. Uh, he's conquered, and the way that he conquered it was a remarkable story in itself. See, one of the reasons why Sardis had uh, succeeded for so long and thrived was because they thought themselves impenetrable, unconquerable. They were the unconquerable city, in part because of these massive cliffs that surrounded three sides of the city. I've got a picture up there that you can see right now what that looked like. Something at its scale, something like at the smallest portion of it, it's something like 1,500 feet to scale those cliffs to get up there. They thought they were unconquerable. And in fact, their entire system, as the, the city of Sardis was being attacked some 600 years before this is being written in Revelation 3, um, they had all of their defenses ready on the one side of the city that was exposed. Uh, and then there was the story, the legend is told, that King Cyrus was out there attacking the city, sieging it, not knowing what to do. And then he saw a soldier uh, there go and leave to retrieve something and climb down just a few steps on that cliff to retrieve something that he had dropped. And he realized they could do it. And so he sent one soldier up 1,500 feet who made it in. Several more came, and all of a sudden they were able to literally open the doors of the city from within. Sardis had been conquered. They climbed those unguarded cliffs, and they made it their way in. It was remarkable that it happened once. What's remarkable is that it happened not once, but twice. Alexander the Great did the exact same thing. Both times, the city of, the city of Sardis was conquered because of their hubris, because of their arrogance. They assumed that they were unconquerable. They assumed that nothing could touch them, and they lived their lives accordingly. And here, Revelation 3, you will see a church that is mirroring the history of its city, they believe they are unconquerable, and they mirror the failure of that great city. What do they see? I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is an odd moment here as we kind of move through these story, these churches, because he really has nothing good to say about them. Uh, normally when you hear that word, I know your works, he's getting ready to praise them for something. What he praises them for is, well, they've got a reputation. Uh, and I think the way that reads literally in Greek is you have the name life, uh, but you are actually dead. They're walking around with a sense that they're alive. They're living on a reputation. They're living on a memory of something good that once happened long ago. And they appear to be alive. Many of the folks around them, many of the folks in the city of Sardis would look at that church and say, well, they're doing fine. But the truth was, quite, was a whole lot darker. There was something else going on. Even as they were living on this reputation, ultimately they were living on a past. You are dead. He finds nothing to celebrate inside that church. The crisis of the moment, he is exposing for them the reality of what lies underneath. 
he is exposing them before the reality of what intrudes on their life will expose it for them. And I think that's, a, a, that's what we need to hear ourselves. We need to remember that right now as we're going through this crisis, as we're navigating this as a world and as a country, that we are dealing with something first in a lifetime for, I think, pretty much all of us at this point. We're dealing with unheard of and un, uh, you know, new experiences, but it's exposing things in us. Have you found yourself more anxious this week? Have you found yourself perhaps more impatient? Have you found yourself struggling to be with the people that you're living with? And if you're dealing with living alone right now, are you struggling with that time alone? It's exposing something in us. And like Sardis, the question will be, will we find, is he finding us uh, asleep on the watch? What does he do? What's the hope in that? Where do you find the hope in that kind of charge? They're living on something that's, the, the real, reality is they're dead. They need to come alive. Well, what he says is really five different commands, imperatives, as he charges them to literally rise from the dead. This is what the, the church in Sardis needs to do. It's not that they need to just tweak a few things. They actually need to rise from the dead. And he is calling them to rise from the dead. Well, his first call is simply to wake up, to be alert, and to pay attention. I mean, that's the first thing. You've got to wake up. You've got to recognize your situation, recognize who you are and where you're at. Be aware and pay attention. We've had a lot of wake-up calls. That's really what a lot of the last few weeks have been about, is we've seen all these different government leaders, from the president and the governor and all these local leaders saying, wake up, be alert, this matters, something's going on that really is important. We need to wake up. We, and, and even as much as our culture is calling us, our world is calling us to wake up to the reality of a pandemic and what we need to do in response and how we need to live and how we need to sacrifice and reorder our lives, the calling for us in this season as a church is to wake up spiritually. And there are multiple ways that we can refuse to wake up. I mean, I was thinking here the last few days as I read the governor's order on this, uh, this stay-at-home order. The governor called, um, he, he has called so many things essential. That's, the, that's the, been the word of the week. You know, what are essential businesses? What's essential to our economy? And for our governor, marijuana production, marijuana sales is essential. Abortions are essential. Spiritual care is not on the list. Spiritual care is non-essential. The worship of God's people is not an essential activity. Now, I'll give a lot of deference and respect to our leaders as they're navigating a health crisis and helping us navigate choices and figuring how to do it. But realize, in that kind of perspective, if we embrace that as the whole of our reality, that is foolishness. It is foolish to think that spiritual care and spiritual alertness is a non-essential activity. For the church, it is first and foremost the first thing we need to be paying attention to during this season. How do we tend to the soul? We are in our culture right now dealing with a culture that fears that which destroys the body. But Jesus says, don't fear that which destroys the body. Fear that which will destroy both the soul and the body. We are called to be a people who are alert and paying attention, not just to the reality of a pandemic, but to the reality of our souls and the souls of those around us in the midst of this challenge. Wake up. They need to wake up. We need to wake up. The second command he gives them, wake up and then 
strengthen, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Call each other to life. And here you have, I think, a hint of where he's talking about, as I've said, as we've moved through this story here, the history of these churches, each church has moved us through the history of Israel. And we've seen a different piece. Where this piece is, in terms of the history of Israel, this church is dealing with an echo of the remnant, of the exile. When the church was sent, when Israel was sent into exile, there always was a remnant. They're sent into exile because of their abandonment, because of their sin, because of their rebellion and their wickedness. But always, throughout history of Israel, there was always a holy remnant. There was always somebody, some small group of people who held on to their faith. And here, it is in a sense, it is a wake-up call. There is a remnant among them. There's two different aspects of this call to strengthen. Strengthen what remains. There are some folks in there who in the midst of unfaithfulness, in the midst of wickedness, are calling their people, are living faithful lives. So there is a, a, a reminder to strengthen that remnant, to be that remnant. And also I think there's a remnant of works. There are some people in the midst of all the things they're doing wrong, there's little good things. There's memories of good things that they can reawaken, strengthen, call out that which is good and noble and right, and lean into those things. Some are faithful. There is a remnant. There is a remnant, and the world right now needs that faithful remnant. This is a testing season for the church. In a sense, this is a season that can purify the church. Some can run in despair. Some can give themselves over to the fear of the moment, be captivated by it, be held by it. There's something deeper that it's calling us to. We are called to be a people strengthening ourselves, strengthening one another as we lean into the reality of the gospel in this season. Strengthen. Strengthen each other. Uh, and, and he says this odd little thing in the midst of this thing about strengthening. He says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of a God, uh, in, in the sight of my God. Your works are incomplete. They're doing these things, but it's not, a, it's not as if they're saying, well, you're doing a little bit, you need to do a little bit more. It's that their works are not persevering. The, the true church, this is a theme that you're going to see throughout Revelation. The true church is a persevering church. Uh, grace, the grace that God has given us will animate our actions. This is that testing season. In the midst of challenge and stress and crisis and all that's going on around us, it is a time for the true church to rise up and reflect the hope that we have in the midst of challenge, in the midst of hardship. This waking up will come for us and for them as we recenter ourselves on the gospel. It's a time to remember the gospel and to lean into the power and the beauty and the glory of the gospel. So we strengthen, and then we remember. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Waking up comes as we reconnect with that story of old. I think that's why it's so helpful to me in the last few weeks as I've read all these stories of the way the church has survived and thrived in the midst of viral outbreaks and epidemics. We're not dealing with anything new in the history of the church. In fact, we're not even dealing with anything near as serious as what the church has dealt with before. We're just getting, this is like the training wheel experience of what the church has already had. We already have a history, a known history in the church of God's faithfulness to his people, God's ability to strengthen and even build up the church 
in the midst of crises like this, far more serious crises than what we're facing now. We've already been down this road. God has shown his faithfulness again and again. Our job is to remember. How are you awakening that memory right now? What are you spending your time focusing on? What are you spending your time doing right now in these days? You've got a lot of time at home. and may have a lot of time at home for a while. What are you going to fill your mind with in that? Fill your mind with things that will help you remember the power beauty and the glory of the gospel and the faithfulness of God through his through the generations he has demonstrated it time and time again they need to remember it we need to remember it fourth command they need to keep it keep it practice what they believe we, we remember the word in order to practice the word and I think that's that, that has a unique challenge right now one because it's a high stress season and I think we're going to experience different stresses in different ways. But as we experience that anxiety, we realize, we see that, you know, I realize the stress of even as I've responded to my kids this week. At times I've responded with impatience or frustration and I'm expressing the stress that I'm navigating by taking it out on them in appropriate ways. It exposes something. Part of me remembering the gospel is keeping it and how I'm loving and caring for the people that I'm with day in and day out right now. How do we keep it? How do you practice it? How do you practice the hope that we proclaim? How do you practice it day in and day out as you're living with one another, as you're posting online, as you're interacting by video conferences or by phone calls? How are you practicing keeping the hope that we have in the gospel? And I think it's one of the ways that we can encourage and challenge each other as we're engaging one another. Don't be afraid to call each other out. When somebody is living in that despair, beginning to wallow in despair or hopelessness, call each other out to remember the gospel. Remember it in order to keep it. We remember the word to practice the word. And then the fifth command that he gives is to repent. Again, something we've heard throughout. We keep hearing it in Revelation again and again. It's one of the most hopeful words in Revelation. Because it's one thing to call each other out for all the things that we may do wrong or that we have going on wrong in our lives. But the reality is that we keep hearing in this gospel this word, repent, which means it's not too late to change. We can change. And we change not through our own power or through our own strength. We change because God can change us through his grace. The grace of the cross, it has within it the power to let us repent. Repent. Now there's this warning that hovers over them if they won't repent, if they won't turn from their faithlessness. And he says it, if you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, boy, that language of the thief just resonates. He comes like a thief in the night. It's something that Jesus says about himself. Paul says it about Jesus. Peter says it about Jesus. We keep hearing Jesus will come like a thief in the night. You don't know the hour. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Of course, the people of Sardis have that deep in their memory. The, that city was conquered twice because they, it came. The conquering came like a thief in the night. In the middle of the night, somebody scales the impossible wall. The unscalable wall opens the door and the enemy comes in. That's how Jesus says, I'm going to come. We don't know. He calls us to live alert and ready lives. And if we can't use this season of all seasons as a wake-up call, then we're missing something key. That's the warning. But then here's the promise. He says, 
you still have a few names in Sardis. There's that remnant. This is verse 4. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book. There's that white garments, that picture of white garments. You could do a lot with that. There's a lot of different images that would have echoed for them and perhaps even echo for us. The, the garment of white is the garment of a victory garment. Uh, it, it, it's the celebration of victory. There's a promise of victory. There's a, a wedding celebration, much as we would have today. So it's a picture of wedding. And I think that's deep within the imagery of Revelation, that this is about the bride of Christ. Um, so that those who persevere are part of that bride. Those who persevere are the conquering ones. There's the promise of victory to those who persevere, who sustain themselves in faith, who lean into the gospel, who navigate this season. There is the promise of life and hope. He says more. He says the one who conquers, uh, he says, I will never blot his name out of the book. Now, that image of blotting the name in Roman culture at the time, if somebody was given the death penalty, their name would literally be blotted out of the citizenship rolls. So there is this image of the price of death is to be removed from that, that Roman citizenship, to, to be denied that promise of citizenship. Here, there is the promise for those who persevere, the persevering ones, the true church, the persevering church, there is a promise that they are given this new citizenship. They have this new identity in these white garments. They have a new citizenship through, uh, through Christ that they have eternally. We will never have our name blotted out. And then he says one more thing. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. We're given this new identity, this new future. We know that Christ will confess our name as one of his. That's the promise for those who persevere. That's the promise to those who overcome. The reality is that God has used outbreaks before, and God will use this one. God's purposes are his own. I was reading this week, somebody was trying to reflect on all of the ramifications in foreign policy, what governments are going to be impacted by this, how are governments going to change, and it was a really interesting way to try to begin to speculate. Of course, they just don't know. Nobody really knows, but God does. God's purposes are his own. And I don't know what God is doing throughout the world and all these things, but I know for certain, for you, for us, for me, that God has more for us in this season than for us to catch up on our Netflix queue or master the opinions of whatever our 24-hour news source of choice there are deeper things that God has in store for us in this season than some lightweight entertainment or the panic of a new cycle. There's something deeper for us. How will you respond to that? How will you rise up and respond to what God has for you? Let this outbreak serve as a wake-up call. Today matters. Faith matters. Our souls are an essential business of our lives. Soul care is an essential work in who we are as a people, who we are as a church. So be that remnant. Be the remnant that perseveres. And as you are a remnant that perseveres in this season, be a blessing to the world. Let me pray for us. God, I ask your blessing on our church 
in the different ways that we are navigating the challenges of this season, I pray that you will wake us up, not just to the needs of the moment in terms of our health care, but the needs of our souls as we learn to proclaim and live the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ before others. In Christ's name, amen. So in a moment, we're going